Welcome to Wisdom of Crowds. I'm your co-host, Shadi Hamid. Our guest today is Molly Ball, joining us on the podcast for the first time. She's a national correspondent at Time Magazine and the New York Times bestselling author of Pelosi. It's perhaps the definitive biography of the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. You should check it out. We're including a link in the show notes. In this episode, we talk about what overturning Roe v. Wade will or won't mean for the future of U.S. politics. Until a few days ago, Americans could act under the assumption that Roe was permanent, but it wasn't. The debate over abortion is also a debate about institutions and whether bodies like the Supreme Court can ever truly be neutral. Of course, we also talk about democracy. Ending Roe would mean abortion policy being decided by the states presumably according to the whims of the wisdom of crowds. But is this what we mean by democracy? And then a more practical question. Do evangelicals really think abortion is tantamount to genocide? Obviously, these are some big issues. Thankfully, we have Molly to guide us through this minefield. Molly is a reporter, which means she actually talks to real-life Americans and asks them what they believe. Molly is one of the sharpest observers of American politics around today, so we're very happy to have her. As we usually do, we've split the episode into two parts, each about 45 minutes long. Part one is available for everyone. Part two is for subscribers. Without further ado, our conversation with Molly Ball. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right, Shadi. So, I mean, maybe we can just start with whether or not you were surprised by this, because I guess I'm surprised by a lot of things because I don't follow the news very closely, and I just didn't see this coming. I guess I knew, like, in theory, in my mind, that conservatives wanted this to happen and that there was enough of a majority on the Supreme Court to make it happen. But I think there's a big difference between knowing something will happen and then when it actually happens to be able to process it. And there's a gap there oftentimes. And that's why we're always shocked, even about things that we knew uh, were going to happen. And I'm just curious, like as someone who is, you know, your, your Time Magazine's a national correspondent, um, you cover American politics, you cover the hill you wrote um a wonderful biography of nancy pelosi uh which we'll link to in the show notes tell us how you're like tell us what's going on in your mind right now well, i would say first of all nothing has happened oh Ruby Wade has not <laughs> been overturned all that has happened is that we know that an opinion has been drafted by justice alito um does that fact surprise me not at all because anyone who's been following the court knows that there are these cases before it, and in fact, that 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 uh, stand a very good chance of uh, at least leading this court to uh, sharply sharply limit Roe v. Wade, if not overturn it entirely. So certainly, the possibility has been out there that Roe could be overturned. I will say, though, your point of view is very representative here of sort of most American voters, right? There's this sort of vague sense that, oh, the court's kind of conservative, but nobody really 
thought like, oh, this is something that's going to happen tomorrow, right? So the, the reality of it potentially happening is something that I think surprised most people. Um, it has been on my radar in the sense that like, you know, when I've been out interviewing candidates, um, particularly Republican candidates over the last few months, I have been asking them like, you know, what do you think if it's a governor or what do you think your state should do if Roe v. Wade is overturned or if it's a member of the House or Senate, what do you think, you know, Congress should do? Uh, when and if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Um, so the possibility has been out there politically. But, you know, I've been covering politics for nearly 20 years and 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 the politics of this has always been sort of hypothetical. And Democrats in particular have been trying to scare voters, women in particular, that this was going to happen for a really long time. And it has just, they just haven't believed it for the most part, right? I mean, I remember covering... Uh, the 2012 presidential election when the Obama campaign was making this big push to uh, use Mitt Romney's statements opposing uh, abortion to get women to come out and vote for Obama. And I spent a lot of time like literally talking to soccer moms at literal soccer fields in suburban Virginia. And and they all sort of said, like, that's not really going to happen. So it has been baked into the national consciousness for 50 years now that this was just part of the landscape and that and and the longer it's been in place the less believable voters have found these sort of scare tactics around like those nasty republicans are going to take away your reproductive rights it's sort of been like yeah well wake me when that happens so now we're all awake do, do, do you do you feel i mean again in your reporting leading up to this exactly what you said there though is there a sense among republicans Kind of like, you know, they've been a dog that's chasing the car. Now it's caught the car. Oh, yeah. hundred percent. And they're like, oh. Yeah. I mean, the politics of this in, a, in one way could not be less mysterious, right? I mean, you look at the way both parties have reacted to this coming out and they have both sort of been saying the quiet part out loud, right? You have Democrats saying like, oh, we're so sorry for all these women who can't commit abortions, but this is great for us. And you have Republicans saying like, oh, certainly we all want to end abortion, but oh my God, let's not talk about it, right? They've been very explicit um, on the Republican side saying they want to talk about anything else. Um, and, the, and the Democrats have been equally explicit saying that they believe that this is galvanizing uh, for their voters. So uh, so in that sense, the politics are obvious. And, and on the other hand, I feel like the politics of this are completely unknowable. And I distrust anyone who's making sort of confident predictions or has confident takes about how this plays out because it is unprecedented. But Ro here's the problem. Roe v. Wade has not been overturned before. We've certainly seen abortion be political a lot, but we have never been in this situation. And, I, and so I do think that we just do not know exactly how this is going to play out. Yeah, and along those lines, I mean, when Democrats think that something will be good for their electoral chances, I'm always like a little bit suspicious because Democrats, like Democrats are really good at losing and finding new and creative ways to not do well or as well as they should. And I just, I worry that whatever calculations folks on like, quote unquote, our side are like thinking through like, oh, this will be really good for us. We're gonna benefit from the backlash. Women will rally increasingly to the Democratic Party, especially soccer moms and so forth. I just like that it may not turn out that way precisely because as you said, the politics are unpredictable. We can also imagine a scenario maybe where um, evangelicals get 
very enthusiastic. And, you know, in certain parts of the country, this actually drives up Republican turnout in the midterms. But how, how do you see, like, what is the range of possibilities here? Do you, could it actually help Republicans in some way, or you don't think it's going to be a benefit for them ultimately? Well, they don't think, seem to think so. I mean, I have a pretty ironclad policy of not making predictions. I will say, just to make a sort of meta point on what you said, partisans on both sides are like just completely convinced that their party is just terrible at politics. <laughs> Right. I hear this from Republicans. I hear this from Democrats like, oh, and, and it's because they think they're right and everyone should agree with them. And so it's mysterious to them that the people in charge of their political operation can't magically convince the entire country that that's the case. I would point out that, you know, Democrats currently can control the presidency in both houses of Congress. So the idea that they're somehow only good at losing, isn't, it doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. Now, you feel they should have done better because you think that, you know, that the people should vote for them or whatever. Shoddy knows best. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, Republicans feel the same way. And, 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 uh, and they're, they're the ones who are, who are shut out, at least in D.C. at the moment, even if, you know, people think that they're probably going to do pretty well this November. Um, so, but that aside, like, of course, there's a wide range of possibilities. I will say to the Yes, it could be galvanizing to the Republican base. In general, I don't think voters come out to say thank you, right? Hmm. Um, so like voters come out because they want something to happen. So when it's already happened, I do see this potentially solidifying Trump's grip on the Republican base. I do see, you know, I mean, this is something that, you know, religious voters in particular uh, have been, you know, wanting and working for for decades. Uh, and Trump's the one who finally gave it to them. And so to the degree that, you know, I mean, it, you could certainly make a good argument that his putting out the list of of potential Supreme Court nominees was the reason he won the mm. 2016 election, right? Because it convinced otherwise skeptical uh, religious voters that he would give them what they wanted. Uh, and then he did it, which is a promise kept to them. And that is incredibly consequential, you know? I mean, uh there were there there have been a lot of politicians who seemed closer to the evangelical voter philosophically and personally, someone like a George W. Bush, uh, and they didn't get Roe v. Wade overturned, right? Right. Um, but but uh, you said the voters are not grateful, so it's not necessarily that they then. I mean, there was all the other stuff that people, you know, evangelicals, Trump voters to a large extent were sort of, you know. They knew what they were voting for in Trump as, you know, his personal life, all of that. They were aware of it and they were making a bargain. And now if they've got their bargain to a certain extent, I don't know. Uh, how, how do you think that plays out on the, the question of gratitude and the sort of thank you? Yeah, like, no, it solidify? that's true. Yeah. I did sort of just say two conflicting things, didn't I? <laughs> um, look, I mean, I think they will be grateful to Trump. To the, I mean, they were, Trump already had the strongest hold on uh, on, on Christian voters specifically, on white evangelical voters specifically, uh, of any Republican politician really that I can recall. Uh, and so to the extent that this sort of just solidifies that hold, makes it that much more unshakable, I do think it does that. But in terms of what does it do for the Republican Party in November, what can they go to their base and say, you know, vote for us because we'll do this for you? I mean, yeah, I mean, they can they can say, you know, the Democrats are saying they want to codify Roe, right? The Democrats want to pass a law. The Democrats are doing it right now on Capitol Hill or are, are formulating a bill that they can stage a failed vote on to to show that they really want to make sure uh, that that uh, access to abortion is, is still there. And um, 
And so I could see that being persuasive. Uh, but there we've been we've talked a lot in the last you know couple election cycles about suburban voters uh, and specifically about my demographic, which I always like when my demographic is 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 decisive and it happens a lot. You're white, a soccer mom. I am a white college educated suburban woman, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, and, uh, you know, we were the ones, not saying me, but we were the ones as a cohort that sort of decisively turned against Trump and the Republican Party and swung the election in 2018 and probably 2020 as well. And then swung in, in Virginia, where I live, uh, for uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin and, and put the Republicans back in power. Um, so uh, and, 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 you know, you go further back in history and uh, a lot I can recall hearing, for example, when uh, Janet Napolitano got elected governor of Arizona or Kathleen Sebelius got elected governor of Kansas. These were moderate women in red states who were able to, in, in both cases, persuade a lot of sort of conservative leaning suburban women uh, that the Republicans were too extreme on social issues, specifically abortion. Uh, so that is a big block of voters. Both parties know it's there. Both parties know that this is a this is a, a, you know a block of voters that uh, is already somewhat primed to see Republicans as extreme when it comes to reproductive rights. Uh, so that is, I think, why you see the parties making the assumptions yeah. they are about the politics of can, it. Can I share a little fun aside about because Trump actually um, he endorsed a slate of candidates, right? And some of them did quite well in the in their respective Republican primaries. One of them is J.D. Vance, the author of Hillbilly Elegy. And I think that I I think that I can share this. I, I don't I don't I but it's probably fine. <laughs> I'm not editing, Shadi. I don't have time this week. <laughs> but it's funny because um I um I DM JD Vance a couple months ago because I thought like it would be really cool to have him on the podcast. He didn't respond. <laughs> Understandably, he was busy running a primary campaign. But I think what I, I was I was excited about the prospect of having him on to have a fair but still tough interview of him and to push him on certain things, how he used to be anti-Trump, but now he's become a darling of the Trumpists and he's really portrayed himself as like the... Trumpist populist candidate, but I just thought like listeners might find that amusing yeah. or or worrying, quite frankly, that we would even consider having someone like that on. But anyway, he, um, yeah, and he. Well, was, I hung out with JD a few months ago. I wrote a I wrote a piece about him, and we had we had breakfast in Cincinnati oh. the day after he launched his campaign. So it is okay to spend time with Trump supporting Republicans. I mean, I'm a reporter. That's like a huge part of my life. <laughs> that was more of a rhetorical question. <laughs> I mean, I didn't catch any diseases, if that's what you're wondering. Um, but, uh, uh, but you know, we had exactly that conversation, and and uh, and he 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 sort of somewhat famously said, "Well, I'm actually I'm not a flip flopper on Trump. I'm a flip flop flipper because he claims, you know, he was for the things that Trump is about oh. before he was against Trump as a person, and then he came around, um, and he said, well." Uh, I figured if all of these people who are my people are for him, I just have to suck it up and be for him as well. Oh, well, so, so that's his explanation. Yeah, but yeah, yeah go, go on. on. No, no, go ahead. Uh, well, I was gonna say there's been a lot of analysis out of that primary um, about, you know, how, you know, the Trump endorsement won it and 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 what that means. 
I'm surprised there hasn't been more commentary on uh, the Tucker Carlson factor here because Tucker was the first to really champion JD. And there are a lot of versions of quote unquote Trumpism, I think, sort of vying for primacy at this moment. Like it's easy to to attribute things to Trump since he says everything and nothing sort of all the time, right? He says a lot of conflicting things. Uh, he, he, he obviously doesn't have a sort of well-articulated personal philosophy. Um, so you could say that it was Trumpism to, you know, want to do like no wars, but lots of tax cuts. You could say it was Trumpism to want to do this sort of uh, populist, you know, nationalism, sort of blood and soil to coin a phrase that, uh, that Tucker seems to be into. Um, and, and it's that particular brand of, 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 of potential Trumpism uh, that, that Vance saw as his ticket. And, and, and that's the reason, you know, that I think Tucker kept having him on and endorsed him before he even launched his campaign. And that was what eventually brought Don Jr. into the fold and convinced him that they were simpatico and they became friends. And that's what eventually brought, brought Trump on board. So I think that that's the conduit and that's the philosophy uh, that really won that primary. So I, there, there's a lot there. And I mean, I, I don't want to lose track of some of the stuff we were talking earlier about this, this, you know, uh, as you said, not yet final, but the row moment and, and, and a lot of this, um, and maybe we can start unpacking exactly this around JD Vance and sort of the way you're framing it. Let me see how I can ask this question. To, so we get the conversation started on this. What strikes me, what I was saying earlier, right, is the that maybe the Republican elites are a little freaked out in the sense that they're like the dog that's been chasing this. This has been something that's been chasing for a long time. It's just sort of almost muscle memory at this point. This is what we're after. Get it done. And the disjunct there is, while you're right, as you were saying earlier, right, that that uh, sort of the the maximalist position, maybe the activist position within the Republican Party renders the whole thing uh abortion and Roe and, and, and choice, their stance on it extreme. It's also, I think, true that the base, the core base, legitimately is motivated by uh, right to life, right? They, they are a pro, sorry, I mean, pro-life. They are, that is a core thing. I guess what I'm getting at is, is, you know, I, when we talk about Trumpism and Tucker Carlson and Peter Thiel's involved also in getting uh, JD there, there's there's always for me the question of um, maybe there's like a like three three points in the the spectrum. There's the activists, there's the political elites, and then there's the base, and then there's sort of the broader public, and and I feel like you know Trump. I sometimes wonder whether he most correctly reflects a certain truth about the Republican base, rather that, than that it's Trumpism, that rather it's reflective of that. Then there's the activist class, which is sort of separate from the base, though I think maybe is more aligned on abortion with the Republican base than the elites are, who've just been sort of going through the motions on this. And, and I don't know, does any of that sort of, you know, does that make sense in a way to sort of to think about it? Because I, I, I get frustrated, and I, it's something Shadi and I talk about a lot here is, you know, the podcast sort of started when Trump came on, like the idea of wisdom of crowds is, you know, 
haha, wisdom of crowds, Trump is elected. You it's know? ironic. It's the ironic sort of title of he it. He never won the popular vote, though. Yeah, still, you know, it's... <laughs> it's uh, I, that's sure. Sure. I'm not saying crowds are wise or unwise. I'm just saying that, like, Trump is not a failure of uh, popularity. No, that's fair. I mean... We can get into that, like the, the where democracy sort of, you know, institutionalized democracy and what counts for it. it. Are we then talking about that the Electoral College is undemocratic and these like counter majority? Let's have things? a long conversation about whether voters are stupid. No, that's OK. We can keep talking. About no, that. I mean, <laughs> I, it's, it's not it's not Possibly I mean, the only dangerous the irony of it is, is I mean, our, our, our sort of joke, though, is not is not necessarily the voters are stupid. It's 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 actually even more that, you know, we on the one hand, we lionize the wisdom of the people. And then in certain sort of ways, we get horrified by popular things. And I think that's an elite versus base thing that happens. It's something that that's a factor in democracies. And I, I just wanted to sort of, I guess, start teasing that apart on this moment, because I think it's interesting yeah. that 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 nexus between uh, what what do you think from your reporting, for example, uh, is how, how does this moment, again, anecdotally from friends who, you know, either have family or are more conservative and, and have their, 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 their parents, their families seem to be actually quite, quite happy and energized by this in a way that elites aren't. And then obviously the activist class is beside themselves with happiness, both the sort of fed sock people and, uh, you know, sort of the pro-life movement more broadly are, are besides themselves. They've been working on this for 50 years. Right. So again, you know, how, well, so, you, so look, yeah. uh, I would say a few things about that. First of all, there's a Republican base and there's a Trump base, right? And the reason Trump won is because he was able to take the existing Republican base and be acceptable enough for them and then add the Trump base who were, you know, new voters, hadn't voted at all before, hadn't voted for Republicans before. You're sort of very stereotypical, right? Like white working class a uh, rural voter in, 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 in Iowa or Ohio who, you know, Trump speaks for them like no politician ever. So they're starting to merge, right? And, the, and this is the task of the GOP in this moment is to try to convert the Trump base into a longer, a, a lasting Republican base. They haven't done it yet. They haven't won without Trump on the ballot. Um, and so, but, but some of that Trump base is quite secular, so that's a difference between the Trump base and the Republican base potential. I mean, a lot of them are not, right? Um, and there is a lot of overlap. And it's certainly true that the, those, those evangelical voters, again, are, are very, very, very enthusiastic about Trump more so than any other uh, sort of sociopolitical demographic. Um, but both parties have polarized on this is another point that I would make, right? And that's partly, it, that's sort of cause and consequence of Trump. But, you know... It used to be that you had the, the mainstream Republican position was very much uh, that abortion uh, should be mostly illegal, but with exceptions. Uh, and the mainstream Democratic position was sort of the, the, the famous, quote unquote, safe, legal and rare. Um, but in the intervening years, uh, as everybody's just gone bonkers and, and become um, more extreme, uh, the, the Republicans have have it's become more and more okay for Republicans to take the hardline position of no abortions ever, no exceptions. And for Democrats to take the hardline position of, you know, abortion on demand until the moment of birth. And it's a positive thing. We, we refuse even to say that abortion is shameful or bad. Um, and, and those are both quite unpopular positions. 
Um, but both parties' bases have demanded that they become more vocal about those extreme positions. Um, but then going back to the point about, you know, elites versus base versus activists, et cetera, um, the sort of, you know, the famous quadrant diagram of politics with social and economic liberalism and conservatism, right? For a long time, you had the Republicans were the party of social and economic conservatism, Democrats, social and economic liberalism. And then you had this very, this sort of vacant quadrant, right? The neoliberal quadrant of, of uh, fiscally conservative, socially liberal, the, which is, you know, 80% of the Republican staff on Capitol Hill, right? Pro-gay marriage, but want to cut taxes. Um, very much out of step with, with, with sort of the base there. And then you have the other quadrant, which nobody was speaking for sort of until Trump came along, right? The sort of the socially conservative, but fiscally liberal. And that is very much the sort of J.D. Vance sales pitch is saying, let's have a sort of a welfare state that supports families. Let's move away from these, this, this extreme sort of Paul Ryan, like cutting entitlements and, 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 uh, and taking government assistance away from people, uh, but let's also be super hardcore conservative on things like abortion. Let's go back to, you know, an, an, an anti-gay marriage stance that I think a lot of Republicans, Republican establishment elite types were pleased to put that issue behind them. Um, so uh, so that's the vacuum that we saw Trump fill. And it's clearly the place that people like Vance and like Tucker would like to see the Republicans occupy. It is the sweet spot in a sense. I mean, some people even accuse me of being close to that quadrant or that like over the years, they think I'm inching in that direction. I, I don't think it's true, but but it's just worth, but there is something to be said for, um, you know, I'm not as, I'm not as like liberal as where the Democratic Party is now. And I think a lot of people are starting to feel that on social and cultural issues, that the activist base of the Democratic Party has gone so far in a particular direction that a lot of Americans end up being to the right of where the Democratic Party is now. But point of clarification, just so, because I actually don't know the answer to this. You said that both parties have moved towards extremes on either side and that you have Democrats calling for abortion on demand until birth. I've always thought that that was a bit of a caricature because that seems to me to be a crazy position. And the fact that people are actually saying that you can have like partial birth abortions that close, like that close to like the birth date. I, I mean, so that that's just one thing I'm wondering about. But also, if I understand correctly, the Mississippi case, I guess the Dodd case is about 15, about um, abortion would be prohibited after 15 weeks. So it seems that at least in that context, Republicans are still allowing for the possibility that you can get an abortion in the first trimester. Or am I misunderstanding those two positions? No, I think you're right on the specifics there. Um, but I do think that we've seen, uh, I, I don't think you see a lot of, say, Democratic politicians articulating uh, you know, the extreme left position, but you definitely see it in the activism. You definitely see the way that activists treat this issue um, has, they, they've be, like, I think, you know, if you have the, the, the partial birth abortion bill that was a bar bipartisan bill when it passed however long ago, I, I wonder how much democratic support you would get for that these days or whether you would have a lot more of uh, the the sort of reproductive rights organizations, your Planned Parenthoods and NARALs and so on. I mean, think about Planned Parenthood, 
Why does it have that name? Because it was a messaging idea to send the message to people that this is about being able to plan your parenthood. This is about having the ability to decide the size of your family. And I think that's very different than a lot of the, the, the like, say it loud, say it proud, I had an abortion type activism that you have going on in the Democratic Party right now. Hmm. Do, do, hmm. do you think, I, you know, I mean, to Shadi's point about, uh, again, you know, getting to that, that, that elites, activists, base or voters, um, do you think that voters are feeling lost in this, in your reporting? Do you get that sense that they're feeling left out from as the parties polarize? Or, you know, the counter is, is that we're all becoming polarized as voters. I mean, it's hard for us in D.C. because we live it and I think we're, we're, we're terrible barometers of any of this stuff. But, you know, it's your job to not 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 be in our bubble. Go out there to much. real America yeah. and talk to the great unwashed. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but but also just in general, you know, I my parents don't live in this country. I'm, I'm you know, uh, first generation. So I... You know, Shadi's actually uh, born here, but also first generation. But, you know, I, a lot of my American friends who have family living in the great unwashed, you know, in the in real America, if you will, it's 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 different. And I feel extra sort of uh, out of that in a way. But the I wonder the extent to which that's that's another one of these things that we we educated folks like to say that, you know, oh, Again, getting back to the wisdom of crowds, like the the horse sense of the people is still sensible at its core. That it's not being that that politics is not reflective of something that's happening to all of us. Do you have a sense of that? Again, you know, the polls on 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 Roe are 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 sort of confusing in that sense because it's what is it sixty forty generally they want it preserved and yet restrictions also want, they want some level of restrictions and then that gets played by politicians and activist class in different ways for different purposes. Is there a sense you think that people are increasingly homeless or they're 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 getting sort of yanked and and you know pulled in the direction of the way that these things are playing out? Yes. Which Next one? question. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, so yes, so I will say number one on your question of like is polarization happening because it's what the people want or or is it hap- or is it something that everybody's distressed about? Everybody's distressed about it. Mm. You look at when pollsters ask this question and they include it on the list of like problems facing our country, like, you know, however you want to phrase it, political division is usually how it's termed. It's number it's like the one thing both parties agree on. It's like 80 percent of people are very upset about the political divides in our country and how mad we all are at each other and how little we seem to want to get along with each other. Now, when you actually get them in a room, are they actually going to shake hands and make friends or are they going to yell at each other? Who knows? Yeah. Clearly, the polarization is coming from inside the house. But you can argue that, you know, it's the product of sort of activism and the fringe and sort of minorities who are able to leverage asymmetric power in smart ways. Uh, But people really are distressed. And, you know, talking about this vacuum in the electorate that Trump exploited, there's a huge vacuum in the electorate right now, and that's the status quo. There is not a party saying we're just the party of like keeping things the way they are. And for a long time, I think that was sort of the appeal of the Republican Party. But you now have both parties promising revolutionary change, uh, if not actually overthrowing the government. Uh, So I think that is a big part of what makes people feel homeless, because, you know, as much as like some very large percentage of people feel like the country's on the wrong track, most people are pretty attached to the status quo, right? Most people don't want to get rid of Social Security. Most people don't want to get rid of Roe v. Wade. Most people want things to stay approximately the way they are. 
but you have both parties saying, no, we need a revolution. And to your point, Shadi, you know, to the point to the uh, you have the, the, the Democratic Party seemingly con- controlled by these very extreme views about things like identity, right? Racial and gender identity and uh, promoting a sort of uh, a, a sort of rigid uh, essentialism that, that, that doesn't speak to a lot of people. Uh, and I think that that is part of this phenomenon where people who would just like things to be the way they are with the way we teach you know, how how people should deal with their classmates of different orientations and that kind of thing. Those people don't have a voice. That's fascinating. I haven't heard it described this way that that um, most American voters are basically status quo oriented, but the two parties are anti-status quo. I mean, that's a profound disjuncture, obviously. But, you know, one thing that... Um, so as as listeners will know, like one thing that we like to do on Wisdom of Crowds is to is to talk first principles. So we have these divides in our country, and we are getting more polarized. I would argue that it's not about disagreements about facts or policy. I mean, that's part of it. That's like a superficial reading. But at the core, there are these deeper divides over foundational questions, first premises, assumptions, and so forth. Um, and I think part of it has to do with, you know, how we view democracy, but also we can even go like deeper religious ideas around abortion and the human person when someone actually, um, when some, when a, a fetus becomes viable and so forth, but we don't have to get into that necessarily. But on, on the democracy question, I want to, I want to just and I wouldn't say this publicly because I, I, I don't. No one's listening. <laughs> We're off the record. But, in, but <laughs> in context, I feel like I can express myself openly here that I think there is something. So I, I personally am pro-choice. Um, we, you know, as, Muslims don't generally have as big of a problem with abortion. It's not like a focal point of debate in Muslim communities for the most part. The classical position in, in Islamic law is that abortion is permissible in the first trimester. After the first trimester, it gets a little bit dicey. But it's not something that people up until now have gotten like really worked up about from like a Muslim perspective, right? Um, but what... Well, if I can just interrupt, yeah. you know where Jewish law is on this question. No, can you... A no. fetus officially becomes a person when it gets a medical degree. <laughs> Okay. Okay, I did not see that coming. That was good. I have not heard that joke before. <laughs> it goes um, to medical school might be the might be the actual joke. But yeah. Go on. So so I'm you know, I so my general position is um if you're gonna have an abortion, probably better to do it in the first trimester. Afterwards, it's probably better to not have too many abortions afterwards. But I, you know, I don't feel very strongly one way or the other. I, I guess I'm more in the Clinton position of, what is it, safe, legal, and and rare, um, which I guess is not the p- mainstream position of the Democratic Party any longer. But I think that I can see an argument, and actually our friend Jason Willick, uh, the Washington Post columnist, has a piece which will probably be out shortly that makes this argument that there's something democratic about putting this back to the states to say that we have been relying on the Supreme Court unelected judges 
for the past 50 years or almost 50 years making deciding these fundamental questions but perhaps there's something to be said for putting this back to voters and saying well Americans disagree we can they can disagree on the local and state level and if you have states where people feel, feel very strongly that abortion should be restricted then they can make their case to the fellow citizens and elect representatives who reflect that if we in blue states or cities feel differently then let's mobilize accordingly and that's a federalist that's a that's a federal solution to it that we say let's actually make this a point of real democratic debate instead of putting it to the supreme court which are just a bunch of elites who went to the same the same law schools and all of that so it's weird to me that democrats are really making this argument that there's something anti-democratic about a potential Supreme Court ruling against Roe v. Wade, when in a sense, that could be seen as a move in a more democratic direction where we let the voters decide. Well, I mean, you are conflating small D Democratic with large D Democratic, right? The Democratic Party is not oh, yeah, sorry, the party sorry. of democracy. Well, yes, yes. So I'm talking about small D democracy, the democratic right. idea that but we let voters- But you're also talking about the Democratic Party and why don't they take this position? So just to point that out, just so- um, I mean, I will say the counter argument to what you're saying, and I am not taking this position, but but just offering the argument is that in our democracy, there are certain fundamental human rights that the Constitution protects. Uh, and the point of the judiciary is to safeguard them, particularly for minorities. So you don't get majorities oppressing minorities, which they can do in a democracy because there are more of them by definition. So, uh, and this is not a case of minority rights so much, but it is a case of, you know, if you believe that uh, a woman has personhood uh, and ought to control her, you know, physical self, for a lot of people to be able to tell, to, to tell a woman that, you know, the state has the power to tell you uh, what to do with your own body, uh, that's a sort of fundamental violation. And that's sort of the basis on which the, the court sort of came to that in some people's view, invented, you know, quote unquote, right to privacy was the idea that there is a sort of inviolable, uh, I'm obviously not a lawyer, but that there, there's a certain sort of inviolable physical integrity that we all have that the state is not allowed to, to mess with. The state shouldn't come into your home and inject you with drugs. So, or though you get into, you know, vaccine mandates when you start talking about that, but the state, you know, shouldn't be telling you basically what to do with, with your body. So I, I think it's more complicated than just saying like, you know, voters ought to get to decide this when you're dealing about something, when you're dealing with something that is so fundamental to sort of the the, the human personhood uh, of women. Yeah, and I should clarify, just, just to be clear, like I'm not fully endorsing what I just said, but I'm intrigued by that. And when I've seen this argument being made by, you know, um, conservatives who are in crazy, not to suggest that most conservatives are crazy, but just the ones who I respect, like Jason Willick, and we'll include a link to his piece in the show notes. It's it's It seems like they, they're they on to something that, I don't know. So it's just something I it's wanted to put out there. It's a legitimate argument, I'm, and, and, um, uh, and, and, it's, and it's what we're likely to see play out, right? And it's what would have happened if, if Roe hadn't been decided the way it, it, it was, was that would, was you would see this piecemeal, piecemeal legislating in certain states. But but if I can just go back to 
you know, the way we started this conversation about this being unprecedented and not knowing how it's going to play out, I, I just want to underscore that because abortion was really different when Roe v. Wade was decided, right? This whole thing about like back alley abortions and coat hangers and so on and so forth. We are living in a world where you can get abortion drugs over the internet, where, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see uh, Planned Parenthood uh, or some other organization convert itself largely into a fund that pays for people to travel out of state and get the abortions that they that they believe that they need. Uh, and, and, and that is something that's largely enabled by technology that wasn't available at the time of Roe v. Wade. So I think we're, it's a very different landscape for communication and human connectedness and technology and medical technology. And all that is going to affect the way this plays out. So it's not going to be the, so it's not going to be quite the same landscape. Um, although yes, it, it, in a lot of ways it will be just like it would have been in 1973 in terms of like the blue states will immediately make abortion legal and the red states will immediately make it illegal. And we'll see how far they go. It'll be interesting to see, you know, you have a lot of red states that either already have or are about to completely ban abortion. And completely and, and, meaning that. Well, they, I mean, in some cases they have the, I don't know if any of them have already passed, but they have these personhood bills, right? That, that literally say that, uh, that a zygote is, is, is a human being that you can't murder. So uh, if they go that far, like, is that enough to turn say Idaho blue? I doubt it, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, in very, very deep red States, how empowered do they feel to, to go to the the real extremes on this issue. And that's, I think, where the, the anxiety comes from elites. And this is the activist elite thing where I'm not sure exactly where the base is, right? Is that 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 uh, the activists are really frothy and 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 to to uh, I think even push on that, like what we don't know what will happen. Um, if the activists now are as emboldened as they are, uh, you know, it's I think it would be a mistake to think that this is the end of it, right? Because now the the terrain shifts to, as you said, like personhood at point of conception, uh, and that's the new normal. And really, I mean, you know, uh, to your point, Shadi, about you know, the sort of querying beliefs on this. If you believe that's true, that's pretty heavy stuff. And and, and then what happens? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Are we putting women in jail right. who've tried to have medical abortions that's or right. who've tried to get drugs over the internet? Uh, and how does that play with the public? Yep. Are women dying uh, because of uh, these types of things? Uh, or is it, does it turn out that actually everything's kind of fine uh, and everybody's kind of okay with it? And as also often kind of happens, uh, the Democrats who were yelling so loudly about what a disaster this was going to be that would end civilization as we know it look kind of like the boy who cried wolf. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, to the, to the, 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 the the question of rights as you framed it you know i i just remember gosh i don't i don't know if i can even dig it up but it really was probably a, a, a decade ago i remember reading a a really good article in the economist of all places that uh did one of these you know economists and this was back then when the economist was a little bit even more conservative i think but they did a a, a special on 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 abortion and they really did this sort of comparative european versus versus american approach and at the time, I remember The Economist really went at that point that by, uh, and this is something I think happens a lot in American politics, in American democratic politics, we make things about rights, whereas the European approach ends up 
in many ways, I think being more restrictive uh, than the American uh, in some countries, depends by country, obviously. Um, but it's it also becomes taken out of the democratic process. And the rights question is taken out because it's sort of shunted off into this is a difficult gray area and somehow it gets shunted off to technocracy, I think, to, to a large extent in some countries. You know, you get panels that decide this. And I mean, we have that here even within the rights debate, like what is viability? That's the core of Roe, right? Figuring out what that point is. And that's maybe we can finally get our death panels. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm, I've always been for death panels myself. I don't know. Uh, but but the, the, the uh, I don't know, throwing that out on the, the whole sort of rights thing, because I, I... I mean, I don't know if I have the, like, international comparative politics uh, knowledge to, to talk about, like, U.S. versus other countries, but, but I do think that for a lot of people it is, a, like, one of the most resonant arguments that you hear Democrats going back to a lot is that this is between a woman and her doctor, yeah, right? Yeah. And the idea that like, no matter whether you think abortion is tragic or wonderful or what, it just fundamentally isn't the state's place to be involved sure, in it, right? Sure. And I think that that is a message that it may go back to this idea about bodily autonomy, it may not, but it, that is a message that I think resonates with anyone who's had to make a, a difficult medical decision, which is most of us. No, sure, sure. I, I, again, though, it, it's, it's, it's striking. Well, even on that, though, it's striking that you could, you could reframe that uh, for a different issue that is, say, less personal and would re really resonate as a much more libertarian position as well, right? It has that resonance of it. And in a sense, when you, when you put that in, in, again, the classic terms of, you know, woman, doctor, state, stay out, you put that in almost any other context, and it, it does. It sounds very foreign in, in a, in a, I would say, in a, in a, in a Democrat's mouth, right? Potentially, you know, just mm. state keep out. Maybe. I mean, it's 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 a common demo, largely Democratic retort to any sort of social conservative arguments, right? It's right. Like whether like we had sodomy laws on the books until quite recently. Oh, that's true. That's and true. that was also the argument against those was like, do what you want in the bedroom. Uh, or, or, or gay marriage or, or a lot of other things. Um, but, it, but certainly to your point about like the comparative politics of it, I, I would certainly not be the first person to argue that Americans are, 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 are a much more uh, individualistic, mm. right? Um, and perhaps, and perhaps small libertarian people, uh, certainly than most of Europe and, and, and less comfortable with a lot of what, uh, what we would see as state coercion. Mm. So, you know, and I think that, so one, when we talk about how Democrats kind of message around this, so on the point about relying on the democratic process versus relying on the Supreme Court, I wonder if Roe v. Wade, and I know you know others have made this argument, um, that Roe v. Wade, first of all, it nationalized this debate and made it much more resonant. And I know there's arguments that the, the rise of the modern religious right um, owes some of its good fortune to Roe v. Wade, that this this basically allowed this incipient movement to gain traction on the national level. And I wonder if also Democrats have become used to not persuading their fellow citizens because they've come to rely on courts to basically, as we've been talking about, protect these fundamental rights. And in the process, our ability to persuade has atrophied. 
and we've become so reliant on unelected judges to kind of see our vision. And maybe we're losing touch with the American people and ordinary American voters because essentially we're thinking, oh, we as progressives, we found what is right. History has ended and it's up to us then to impart this knowledge onto the uncouth, uncouth or uncouth? Couth, but unwashed. We're unwashed, unwashed, yes. <laughs> the uncouth masses. I mean, how do you... Is that is that part of what's going on here that we're losing, you know? Well, I did think of one example of when you were pressing me earlier on, like, can you really say the Democratic Party has become more extreme? I mean, look at what Joe Biden had to do on the Hyde Amendment to win the Democratic primary, mm. right? And just maybe tell this is a politician who's a who's a, who's a very religious Catholic and who's always taken that sort of angels on the head of a pin position of, well, I personally don't like abortions. Uh, but I just don't think the government should be involved, whatever. Uh, but he had tried to position himself as a sort of pro-life Democrat, and he had been for the Hyde Amendment, which is the uh, recurring attachment to uh, spending bills in Congress that sa that says none of no taxpayer money can be used for abortion. And that is a position that's quite broadly popular with the American public. Um, and it was always sort of tacitly understood by the activists, even the reproductive rights activists, that this was just something that, you know, Democratic politicians were going to do to, like, not look extreme, and they would just sort of live with it. And then you get to the 2020 Democratic primary, and Joe Biden is the only one of the, what was it, 11 million, I believe is the actual number, uh, candidates on that stage oh. <laughs> who was not who was not against the Hyde Amendment, and they came under extreme pressure from uh, liberal activists, and he had to, uh, the, the campaign decided that in order to win, he had to give up that position, and he officially came out against the Hyde Amendment. So I think that's a pretty big marker of how activists have pushed the Democrats to a more extreme position, to essentially a position that says abortion is healthcare and the government should fund it because the government pays for other kinds of healthcare. Hmm. Um, so to go back to your question of, you know, are Democrats out of touch or, or condescending or whatever? I mean, for a long time, the status quo sort of served Democrats, right? And they were in the annoying position of feeling like they were right on this issue, but not getting any credit for it. And Republicans could take these crazier and crazier and more extreme stances and do things in red states that, 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 that nobody really agreed with, uh, but they would never pay a price for it or seldom pay a price for it. Uh, because everybody just sort of felt like, well, but we've got Roe v. Wade, so we don't, so you know, nothing's going to change, and that was true. So uh, you know, if as long as we're talking about the wisdom of crowds, voters are smart enough to see that. Voters are hmm. smart enough to see that like politicians can yell all they want about like they're going to take away your abortions, but like last I checked, we still had Roe v. Wade. So that's why I think this whole landscape becomes different once that's once that's no longer the case. So how how much do you if we look kind of like, you know, a couple decades into the future, because as far as I can tell, as long as there's this dominant conservative majority on the court, this is the future for a very long time. And there aren't obvious ways for Democrats to reverse what is likely to come. And I, and I mean, there was an interesting back and forth between Ross Douthat, Jane Coaston, and a couple other New York Times columnists, where Ross was kind of like, the lone person sort of being like, well, wait a second. And it's it's worth reading that whole um, debate that these columnists had. Um, but 
I think he, you know, he was making the point that our politics were very different, as we've sort of talked about before 1973. And if Roe v. Wade is overturned, it could change the way we do politics for the foreseeable future. Um, but again, it's hard for us to imagine that. I mean, I, I don't think any of us, um, no, definitely Demir wasn't alive in 1973. Yeah, just, I just make just sure. barely. Just yeah, barely. you're you're a cusp. I was I was maybe a glimmer at that point. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah. So we don't really know. And even if we were alive in 1973, presumably we wouldn't have sentient memories of what that was actually like. Right. So it's like it's like that thing where there still are people who were alive during the Ottoman Caliphate. Yeah. But they I'm were sorry, like, are you comparing people who are 50 years old to people who are hundreds of years old? I hope you don't have any older listeners. <laughs> well, so, um, yes, it's true, true. Like, well, I too was not alive in 1973, in case you were wondering, but like my husband was, and he was not alive during the Ottoman Caliphate. Yeah, no, no that's it's worth emphasizing. He often feels old, but like not that old. But there, I mean, if you're a hundred years old now, you technically, because the the Ottoman Caliphate was formally abolished in 1924. So if you're a hundred years old, you literally overlapped with the last Islamic Caliphate. It's just like mind boggling. But of course, like if you were two years old, like you're not going to be like that aware of what was going on. Anyway, I do think. No, I, I actually. I want to pause on this because I think about this a lot in politics. We are so blind to the way the passage of time. Uh, affects our politics, right? We all think in terms of our own lifespans. We all compare things to things we personally experienced and the rest of history might as well not exist. So you always have, you know, one election being compared to the last one, but then like an older person might remember, and, and, and a lot of voters are really old. So their frames of reference tend to be a lot longer than say your average political reporter or pundit. But I just think that like, we don't think and talk enough about the way that a sort of human lifespan uh, like, I think a lot of people think politics is changing when it's just them getting older. A yeah. lot of people think that, you know, well, it used to be that people were nice and normal, but now they're shouty and extreme. And actually, that's just the way old people feel about young people. And it may not be the case that if there were any way to sort of qualitatively measure that, that things are you know worse now or were better then. There's also a lot of sentimentality and nostalgia in politics. It's, anyway. a, it's a really good point. And, and I've I, always felt that, incidentally, that that yeah, you know, especially. I mean, this is this has been my 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 core sense about a lot of the moral panics about wokeness and stuff like that. This is just this is just sort of generational churn and. All these people will grow up and get jobs at some point, and then they'll have kids, and those kids will be nightmares too. I mean, I think I think that's how that that ends up playing out. But or not? Yeah, but probably. <laughs> I don't know. But but you know, I but the the way the way maybe the to to not be so complacent. The maybe the thing that I'd be worried about is um, the question of legitimacy of the institutions that we have. I mean, that's the big hit. And, you know, you started off by saying nothing's happened yet, but something did happen. The leak happened. Mm. Um, be curious to know if you have any, you know, speculations or thoughts or leads as you're writing or reporting now, not that you'd share them here before you publish them. But I mean, you know, what you ha I help have us no idea where the leak came from. And have I have no opinion speculate. about any of the speculation. Yeah. I um, mean, but I mean, just as a reporter, I'm in favor of leaks. So I'm yeah, <laughs> no, no, but, but it's not, it's not so much that the leak uh, damages the institution. I mean, I, I, the, the, the interesting thing, obviously that's part of the game. Uh, but in many ways, insofar as that, that uh, this decision was going to happen, um, 
yes, Robert seemed to have been trying to pull it into some sort of median thing. But again, for my friends who are on the right and are in the legal thing, they've all been saying it's happening. It's now or never. You know, this is what we've at FedSoc we've been working on forever. This is the moment it, it's on. So that's going to, you know, for everything we've discussed, you know, passage of time, we're used to this being a part of the sort of political firmament. This is how we understand the world. It's going to be a shock. It's going to have repercussions to the legitimacy of the court. One of the few, you know, counter-majoritarian still institutions, along with the Electoral College, the entire mood of the country has been uh, uh, to abolish and really reform a lot of the, the or at least on the left, has been the, the move to, you know, get more democratic to get do away with some of these things. And yet still, these are these are institutions that form the reality of this country in a lot of ways. Um, do you feel like there's a maybe a crisis of legitimacy moving, even as we say that this is part of this sort of political churn and we're all getting older, so we're, we're crankier and more worried about it? Are you worried, you know, as you do the reporting, as you look out, mm. that there is maybe some sort of deterioration in that? Or is that just I'm getting older and sort of crankier and worried? <laughs> right. Um, well, in terms of the court itself, like I would certainly argue that the leak, rather than being itself a damage to the institution, is a symptom to an institution that must have already been damaged. Right? If the, if 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 the trust, if if the trust weren't already evaporated between the justices and or their clerks and or whoever else and the janitors, whoever has access to the computers in there, wouldn't that be great? Mm. I mean, my, my my I do have a theory actually, which is that everybody is overthinking this. That like. People always think that there is a conspiracy behind any, like, you know, big scoop media story of so-and-so planted it and they timed it for X. You know, in almost every case, we in the newsroom are desperately trying to get the story out and we're thinking about what there's room for in the next paper or what else people are working on or what people have time for or whatever else. It is actually quite difficult, almost impossible to, you know, certainly for a political operative, but even for a journalist to look at the calendar and precisely decide when to, you know, release a story for maximum impact. And I don't think that's what happened in this case. And the, and the motivations of sources tend to be much more sort of human and unpredictable than um, a lot of the, I don't know, sort of Supreme Court criminology that I see going on about, oh, well, it must have been a liberal because X or a conservative because X. Like, it was a person who had their hands on this information and thought the public should know about it. Hmm. And... Uh, it was probably a lot less complicated than some hmm. of the more elaborate theories that we've seen. But look, decline of trust in institutions is something I'm really conflicted about because on the one hand, I am a little bit allergic to a lot of the fetishizing of institutions. And in a lot of ways, I think it's, you know, we're, I feel like I saw it said somewhere that like the, what was it? It was like the 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 boomers were about institutions, Gen X was about individuals, and Gen and, and and millennials were about tribes, and that as a Gen Xer resonated with me very deeply. Um, and so, but you know, a lot of us sort of grew up with these institutions, thinking they were literal institutions like buildings or refrigerators, right? Like objects that just persisted no matter what anybody did. And I think it's really healthy for us to realize that institutions are made of people. And that we have to actually make them anew and staff them and be part of them and contribute to their legitimacy or else tear them down and start over. But they're up to us. And all of these things are only there because somebody at some point made them. 
And in our democracy, we collectively have the power to reconfigure and change them however we want and to change basically all of our political arrangements. So I think that part is, is, is kind of healthy. Um, but some of this, but a lot, except to the point that like a lot of the distrust of institutions or, or erosion of institutions is coming from sort of, you know, bad faith, cynical actors who are deliberately trying to undermine uh, people's healthy trust in institutions uh, for, you know, political gain or just to be destructive or whatever else. Mm. And, you know, I'm a member of an institution that people have lost trust in the media. Mm. And it's hard because... I, I see us in this sort of vicious cycle where, or, 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 or I guess you could call it sort of a doom loop where, you know, the more we see that people distrust us, the more we want to regain their trust. So we get together and say, well, what can we do? And we go and we sort of go to the people who don't trust us and, and beg them to trust us again. And then those people correctly perceive that we are engaged in persuasion, not reporting, and they distrust us more. And it just continues to spiral. So, and I think that applies to the court. You see more and more these justices going out and making speeches about how they're not political. And the more they say it, the less people believe it. Uh, and, uh, and I think that applies to other institutions as well. So uh, it's on the institutions, but uh, it's on us as a society to make them good institutions and institutions that we can trust. But I suppose- And, 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 mm. and sorry, I'm, I'm, I know I'm talking a lot, but, no, no. but just, but just to-, to, to I wanted to say this when you were talking about um, the the politics and how that plays out, and um, that 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 yeah, it is possible that this is such an earthquake in our politics that we collectively, democratically, come together and decide. And 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 in the ideal world, right, in the ideal functioning American democracy, politics is a market, and the parties are then incentivized to come to the middle in order to appeal mm. to the median voter, right? And so. If it is the case that uh, a huge revolt of American women occurs and Republicans suddenly are losing in all of these places where they used to win, you would ideally have the party collectively say, OK, like the market has spoken. If we want to get right with voters, let's try and be more moderate on this issue. And that could happen. I like the free market analogy. And maybe if I could extend the analogy a little bit, one might think of the Supreme Court as almost like providing intellectual subsidies where as long as these subsidies exist, the natural incentives or our natural inclinations as voters are distorted. And once we remove that subsidy, we can fully, we can, the market will be able to sort out preferences well, in a more accurate way. And the question as in way. any market is whether there is any such thing as a free market or whether it's all mediated. <laughs> no, yeah, it's a very good point. It's a very good point. But I, you know, when when Demir was saying earlier that we have these counter-majoritarian institutions, I thought so the Electoral College, the Supreme Court, and so forth. But you had said earlier, Molly, that um, you know, if you're a if you're a small L liberal or even a capital L liberal, you what's care a capital L liberal? Capital L liberal in the sense of the American sense. Like oh, being I see. Liberal I see. I see. Is got on it. the left yeah, yeah, side yeah, of yeah. the spectrum got in it. some sense mm -hmm. or whatever. That you know. Liberals generally emphasize minority rights and they see constitutional protections as as enshrining those and removing them from the purview of the majority, the tyranny of the majority. But it's interesting that sometimes those positions kind of alter in unpredictable ways because increasingly Democrats are saying that 
the Senate is a minority institution. It protects minority rights. Um, the Supreme Court is an institution that protects minority rights, i.e. Republicans who don't win majorities in elections. But at the same time, when Democrats talk about and liberals talk about rights, then they go back to talking about the need to protect minority rights. Just to say that no one is really being consistent in how they view majority versus minority. It's really fundamentally about whatever will support your own party's objectives at any particular moment. Um, I know that just I don't know I don't have like a bigger point. I'm to sorry, make. it's blowing my mind right now that you're saying that politics is a wash in motivated reasoning. <laughs> and- <laughs> Yes, I, I guess it's like a blindingly obvious point to Sorry. make, but it just frustrates me. But you me. see this with the with the Roe v. Wade debate as well, right? Like you don't see a lot of people arguing over the sort of constitutional principles. It's all about whether women can or can't have abortions, which yeah. is very much not necessarily the place the court's supposed to be. The court is supposed to be about reasoning from you know the Constitution. Um, but that's not the. But the debate we're having is all about. It's, yeah. it's not about the means; it's about the end. And, and, that, and that is how. And that is how people think. And that is one hundred percent where all of these conclusions and ideas come from. And it's no, also about nobody like which was mad. Nobody on yeah. the left was mad at the electoral college, and still until it started losing the election. Ah, yes, that's a point I've made before. Uh, committed listeners will remember I've made which doesn't this make point. it right, but <laughs> it certainly is the case. You know what else is a minority? I've heard some Republicans say this that. Like, I, I don't know what they're called exactly, unborn fetuses, or I guess like by definition, fetuses haven't been born yet. I don't know what, but that Sometimes they, are, they refer to them as pre-born children. Oh, pre-born. Oh, wow. Okay. So, but they're a, I get, I think Republicans sometimes say that that's a minority and their rights have to be protected and they're actually a very small minority. So you can always find ways to kind of shift the rhetoric to kind of align with your preconceived position. But one thing I wanted, and because and, one thing we, another thing we try to do here on Wisdom of Crowds, we try to understand to what extent people really believe what they say they believe and how they come to those positions in the first place. And I've always wondered, because I don't really identify with the abortion debate, like I don't lose sleep over it. And obviously- As a man. As a man, obviously, but as a non-evangelical or as a non-Republican, I know some of my Republican or evangelical friends really do lose sleep over this, and uh, I've been spending more and more time with evangelicals in recent years, and I always push them on this. And actually, it's it's worth noting, a friend of mine divulged to me and a couple other people we were sitting with two months ago, and I've known him for several years, he came out and said, I didn't vote for Trump. I didn't, I didn't vote for Trump in 2016, but I voted for him in 2020. And I'm like, what? I and I, this guy, he's I, I, I did not see this coming at all. He's just like he doesn't seem like a, a Trump supporter. But he said, "Listen, Shaddy, what it came down, it came down to it, it came it came down to just abortion, really. Like he's like, I'm a single issue voter." And I want to restrict abortion. And I felt like this was going to be decisive in 2020. And I just had to do it, even though I have other issues with Trump, so on and so forth. But then I pushed him like, okay, help me out here. You're saying that this is your defining issue that like animates your entire worldview. And he was saying something along the lines that abortion is tantamount to murder or even genocide. He may have actually made some reference in that in that manner but i'm like listen 
if you really think it's tantamount to murder, even if you want to extend the analogy to genocide, then presumably if there was an actual genocide happening in America and you like saw, like, I don't know, Muslims being like shot down in the street and being rounded up and put in concentration camps, like you would actually like take up our, like, I don't know, maybe not him specifically, but like some people would be like, we're actually going to like, Commit Resist. violence? Have you noticed that they've done that? Well, well, but in some sense, like we don't see like a, a like a violent insurrection to stop abortion. Okay, but there is not an abortion clinic in this country that does not have a crowd of protesters who are there every single day, either yelling at the women who go in or just or trying or giving them pamphlets, trying to convince them. Like there but that's is not an violence arm- per se. I mean, but we. Don't I'm not. I'm, but but what I'm saying is there are people who believe that. It, that it that because you know this murder this genocide is happening every day they do have to do something about it and some of them shoot doctors yes but a very, uh, and so, mm. or burn down clinics but some of them you know aren't going to do that but they are going to you know go out there and try to stop it in whatever way is available to them like that's Legal. a large number uh, and of often people. for the vast majority of evangelicals and republicans legally and right. through peaceful means but I, but if it was genocide, wouldn't you go beyond the law? Like, I'm just thinking that if you really think that it is the same exact thing as murder, I guess what I'm trying to ask you as someone who like talks to people and try and tries to get them to open up on some of these issues, do they really believe it's tantamount to murder or is that a rhetorical frame? But when push comes to shove, they don't actually think it's murder. I think they do actually think it's murder. I mean, look at gun violence. Uh, advocates, advocates of gun violence, but gun control <laughs> advocates, they're trying to rebrand themselves as anti-gun violence. And I don't want to play in, to buy into their spin, but it's because, you know, people got sick of the, the words gun control. So now it's gun violence prevention, hmm. uh, but it's gun control. So, but, you know, people are literally being murdered in the streets every single day. And there is a large group of people who believe that it's because guns are legal in this country and you know what they're trying to do something to stop it as well so but 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 most of us like are able to go about our day despite the fact that a large number of our fellow citizens are being murdered in the streets we are hmm. not galvanized to action by the fact that a large number of our fellow citizens are being arguably preventably murdered in the streets every single day also historically so we know that people, people ignore genocide when it's happening in their own country also let's not forget that most people will most just people want will the status just... quo to continue and not exactly. to be bothered and exactly. not to have okay to do but anything. i'm just saying like if if i thought a genocide was happening in my own country i wouldn't like i wouldn't i wouldn't do anything like totally crazy but i would not consider the government to be legitimate i would say there is is a regime in power and i withdraw my consent as someone who is being governed i would say look I do not consider this to be a legitimate government and I'm willing to kind of exist in this way, but this is not, this is, you know. I think frankly, there is a segment of the evangelical right for whom that's true. And I think if, if you want to talk about, you know, the extent to which Trump uh, subverted democracy or, or, or promoted, you know, anti-democratic ways of thinking, there, there may be a, a nexus there. But but Molly, I, I th- so that's interesting. I, I did want to get back to this at some point, but and I think Shadi's point there sort of gives me a way back into it. I was struck by when you were talking about institutions and the way you characterize democracy, and you 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 talked about it in terms of trust rather than legitimacy. That jumped out at me. And again, the way you talked about the democratic order is one that you know the the institutions emanate from us. 
and that we can just remake them, you know, or ought to be able to at least rejuvenate, if not even remake at some point, you said even tear them down and start anew. I, and, 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 you know, Shadi there talking about, you know, this hypothetical genocide that he withdraws his consent to being governed in legitimacy. I, I think, I guess what worries me about where we're headed is, um, and maybe this is just my temperament, is that, and lack of optimism about democracy as this self, you know, refurbishing thing that it's not just a bunch of people that get together and decide things like institutions. In fact, without the institutions that have founded this country, it's just a bunch of people. More so in this country than in nation states in Europe. Personally, that's, you know, I, I'm from Europe and that's one of the things that really strikes you here is that that this institutional framework inherited, you know, for all its ills and historical ills from back then, but still that is this country in a way that, you know, uh, the French found new republics, but it's the Frenchness that keeps them together, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so... And as many have said, this is a this is a nation founded not on a sort of tribal ethno-state, but yeah. on an ideal, on a set I, of ideas. On a set of ideas, but also institutions. And that's the part that, that you know, maybe just press you on that again about... I guess you're not worried about it, that, that you know, you, you, the, when, the way you were talking about the Supreme Court, you have a, I, I got the sense anyway that, that you know, well, it's, it's acting politically, uh, therefore it's losing trust among voters, and therefore it should be losing trust among voters. That tells us something that it needs to be somehow re, revamped and rejuvenated. Um, my, my sort of worry is uh, legitimacy is a tough thing in a democracy in general because it's always in tension with the democratic spirit. Um, but legitimacy is important. It, the, the governing and rule is important. And of course it's diffuse in a democracy and the rest of that. Um, so the thing that, 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 you know, ends up maybe where we end up going, Shadi was saying earlier, Democrats frustrated with the court, they see, you know, a set of young justices and inability to do that court packings next. That starts then messing with the some kind of again. It's fine. It's happened before in our history. Can happen again. But again, it 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 takes us down a certain rung again of a certain kind of legitimacy of an institution. Maybe you feel it's fine and and you're not worried about it. I guess I'm 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 generally worried about it. And and you know to your point about the difference between of course the fourth estate is critical to a functioning democracy, but it's a different kind of institution. Sure, than it's not the kind of part of the sort of the, separation the, of powers yeah, trilogy. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But look, I mean, there's an argument to be made that these institutions have become sclerotic in a way that the founders did not intend, right? Up until the 1970s, we amended the Constitution willy nilly, and it was something that was available for you to do, and people would go and do it. And then we decided, and maybe this is because the boomers were born and decided that the way things were at the moment they became conscious was the way things ought to be forever and ever. Uh, and they, and constrained by, you know, the, the perspective of their lifespan, they became determined to preserve exactly that arrangement and made more and more rules and, you know, sort of extra constitutional, the, the, the vaunted quote unquote norms that Trump was always violating. Those were just expectations. It wasn't the law. It wasn't the institutional, uh, you know, the, 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 the sort of black letter rules of the institution. It was just, we expected you to act in a certain way. You, we expected you to respect this thing or, but we never actually made a law about it. Uh, but we just expected you to act the way we wanted you to act. And so, I mean, I'm not trying to say that none of that was legit 
legit, right? There were a lot of sort of norms and guardrails that I was very much alarmed by Trump's attitude to. Uh, but I do think we are in a moment where a lot of us are sort of conscious of uh, how, how, how little ability we have to dictate the, the way our institutions run, and maybe that should change. Maybe we should get back to a place where, you know, it, it didn't seem impossible to amend the Constitution if we had a problem with, you know, if like, if, if, if the vast majority of Americans would like there to be some kind of right to have an abortion, uh, go do that. But it seems impossible because of all of the obstacles, roadblocks, you know, veto points, as, as political science, science scientists term it, in our system. And a lot of those are just what I think of as the sort of like sclerosis of like, you know, I think of them almost like 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 calcium deposits on a joint that you haven't used in a while. And, 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 uh, and maybe we should. But maybe we can never have a broad enough consensus precisely because we're so polarized. It may never happen again in our lifetimes that 75% of Americans from both parties agree on something and then are able to express that will through the legal or electoral process. I mean, sure. But to your point about the religious right earlier, I mean, it's not the case that religious people opposed abortion and then when the court made it legal, they all mobilized. It's actually the other way around. I mean, the Southern Baptist Convention what, had an official position in favor of abortion. And then it was after Roe v. Wade that there was, there was a big movement, there was controversy, and in a lot of these different denominations, you had pro-life activists make this the religious position, but it did not start out that way. It was the Catholic position for sure. Okay, but in a lot this, of Protestant churches, hmm. it was not. That's fast. I did not, I was not aware of that. Southern Baptists, can, under what circumstances would Baptists- You're gonna have be, to ask an, a historian if you want any other detail. That's my one factoid <laughs> about Southern Baptists I mean, and abortion. But no, it's true. I mean, ask, you know, ask Russell Moore. This is a, this is a, this is a much more recent change, even in the religious community, and to the point about democracy, it is in a way a, a success story about activism. It is a, a story about how people who believe in something passionately and are willing to devote you know, an entire generation to this cause and persuade their fellow Americans and work all the levers of power and put it on the national agenda in a way it really was not before, they can eventually succeed. Yeah, well, that undermines your point, Demir, because if activism works and you, ha you have a small group of ideologically committed people who like just, they go out and they do something and support something that's actually unpopular, but it actually gets through because they are committed, that does have implications for the future of wokeness because we can't go back to the way things were in the 60s and early 70s before Roe v. Wade we're going to have to live with the consequences of that pretty much for the rest of our lives. We may have to live with the consequences of hyper-wokeness for the rest of our lives, too, because what what is done cannot necessarily be undone. Well, look, I mean— But, I, like, when but like when did we have this great democracy that everybody's so, uh, so nostalgic about, right? Women couldn't vote until 100 years ago, and black people couldn't meaningly, meaningfully vote until 50, 60 years ago. And so, like— this I, and, and, and you have, you know, voting rights activists saying that the vote is still being suppressed. I don't necessarily agree with them. But uh, but the but I think a lot of people have awoken, so to speak, uh, to the fact that for all of our like, oh, my God, democracy is being destroyed panic. We're actually realizing that, no, it's our job to make democracy for the first time because we never had one. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I guess I guess 
my and pers- there were a lot of unspoken assumptions that went on that that that, that went into that 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 you know hundreds of years of sort of willful blindness or, or pretending that that wasn't the so, case. So Molly, you might not be aware of this, but one of um, Demir's pet peeves or bugalaboos. Bugalaboos, good lord. Well, is a that word. a word? Bugaboo, I think. No, bugaboo. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I like bugaboo, bugaboo though. Bugaboo's better. <laughs> He 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 gets very emotional when progress is mentioned yeah, yeah, as yeah. something that happens. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I was about to say. I mean, I was I was just going to go there. I'm not, I, I I I guess the way I and and my anxieties about this have more to do with, uh, and maybe this is what sort of you know codes me more as a conservative temperamentally on these things. But I I I I, I don't start from from rights and progress and start more of from the side of you know cohesion and what can work. And, and, you know, as, as basically uh, a naturalized American, uh, I'm always amazed at how this country continues to work because it confounds my expectations in a lot of ways that it continues to work. And yet still, I, as I watch what, again, what I'm pressing you on this questions of legitimacy and what like binds it together. And my worries are in fact that, yeah, activism works. And yeah, I am contradicting in the sense about the, you know, my, my other sense of that as I grow older, I just get crankier and that I just shouldn't worry about a lot of stuff. But I, I do wonder whether there are limits to, because it is an ongoing experiment, I think. And the way you put it just now about constantly reforming and making democracy, uh, I wonder if, you know, there is a functional perfect democracy you were talking earlier about the ability to, uh, and Shadi was countering this, the ability to, you know, uh, be able to uh, reform the constitution and to do amendments and, and to actually change it. Part of that was because there was a hegemonic, you know, basically ruling class that was much more coherent and able to do these sorts of things. And, uh, you know, the role of ideas perhaps changed minds and, and allowed certain reforms to happen. But without a... Um, I'm not sure that 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 the end limit of a that it that it all hangs together if you take uh call it you know even at the limit the way I think about it is if democracy was to rule the world the world would be ungovernable I guess is where if you if you roll it back from that I don't believe that we could have like a, a properly global society that is democratic and would be manageable or would be able yeah, to work. Democracy only works if you restrict citizenship. You can or, only or, have democracy in a nation. I think there's something to that. And maybe not. Maybe you disagree with that. But that's where my anxiety comes from on all of this. And that's where Shadi was sort of saying about my sort of, you know, progress skepticism and uh, you know, get emotional. But yeah. But America <laughs> is better now than it was 50, 60 years ago in the 60s. I mean, but not to, I, we don't have to go down. Yeah, that we don't have to go hole. down that path right now. But I think it's self-evident, but you know, but please. I, just, I, just, I don't know. I just am, am, what does it mean to be governed if not by ourselves? It just seems like if we don't have self-government, the only alternative is someone else being in charge and that person not having democratic legitimacy, which is some kind of monarchy or authoritarian system or whatever. I mean, I guess you have you have you know a republic, a sort of democracy with an asterisk or whatever. But like, I don't know. I, I I don't know if I agree with you that like if the people were in charge, they could not be governed because the whole idea of democracy is is self government. I mean, it's it's the question of 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 the const of 
Like, I guess what I'm saying is, what is the virtue of the people being somehow controlled or quote unquote governed if they are not themselves in charge? I feel like, you know, you put it that way, it's, 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 it's sort of layers of abstractions of what is the people, uh, what is governance? I mean, you know, even in the founding of this country, a lot of moves were made to legitimate the kind of compromises that you know, in the constitutional process were sold to the people and the whole concept of representation is fraught. Uh, what does it even mean to self-govern? Are we, you know, at the limit, are we talking about everyone is voting and everything's a plebiscite? Obviously not. We delegate stuff to institutions, to, you know, things. Now, how the extent to which we're involved, the extent to which people are mobilized, how that functions, it's, to me, all of that is not really particularly tied to virtue or any kind of sense of progress or moral element to it. It's kind of a I pretty, didn't mean it in the moral sense. No, I just but sort you of know what I mean? the upside. Like, I mean, the upside, the, is, the upside is, is it's a system that works, clearly. But what do you mean works? Like, keeps people from killing each other all the time and, and, and make sure that they have enough sustenance? Well, I mean, it works. We're living in the society. And, you know, there's... But, like, that's... A, I guess that's what I'm saying is, like, if you're going to say that it doesn't, quote-unquote, work, I, you have to say, like, what... Gov but we're not going to decide, no. like, what government... No, but for. but I, I guess what I'm <laughs> getting at particular my, it's 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 the 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 question is is I guess I'm nervous about uh, legitimacy and you're optimistic about it. That's all that's striking, and that's the the thing that's that's interesting. I think in this in this back and forth to me, and I think it is maybe broadly without you know you're a journalist, you have no political affiliation, but but uh, I think it it maybe it's it's what what what's striking to me maybe between sort of a kind of small d democratic optimism and a more conservative anxiety, if you will, about these sorts of things. And it's because I would say that, that what is government, it's, it's, it's a set of arrangements for ordering a polity. And uh, there's, all sorts of, uh, there's all sorts of stories that are told about the legitimacy of monarchies, which we find ridiculous now, but didn't like several hundred years ago. And there's all sorts of stories we tell ourselves about we govern ourselves, which actually are stories too, that seem very plausible or, and are actually very comforting at this moment. But at the same point, you still have a society that is coherent and functions. And so one can then impart that this is a, a story of progress, that we've moved past these silly ideas of, of God's anointing individuals, and that these people have the right and to order society and, and govern it. And now that we have moved down into something that is much more legitimate and true because we are governing ourselves. But of course, you and I are not governing ourselves. There's a government that we delegate. And as Shadi says, you know, grant our, our consent to, to the legitimacy of this thing. To me, the question of legitimacy is really important. And that's so I approach institutions and the deterioration of that legitimacy with a level of panic, I guess, or of concern in my less panicked moments. Um, and that's where I'm at on a lot of this stuff, like where we're at, at this, you know, Roe v. Wade inflection point, perhaps around courts and where well, that's but, all going. Okay. So, but look, we are, we are a post-colonial society forged in political violence. Uh, but it does work for most people, as you just said, it does work for most people. Most people feel like the status quo serves them to some extent, even if they're real mad about it. They don't want to tear the whole thing down. Hmm. But we collectively have the power every single day, if we want to, thanks to the Second Amendment, <laughs> to rise up and start over. Yeah. Uh, and that is scary. But to me, it's reassuring because it does work for people to the point that I don't think they would. Right? That most people do want some approximate version of the status quo that we have, even if 
they're not quite aware of that. And so people are going to continue to act politically in ways that, that, that more or less buttress the approximate political arrangements that we have because it, because it is working for them. Mm-hmm. Okay, but um, it is illegal, though, to organize an insurrection. Like, you can't, like, actively try to overthrow But what's gov- legal? What, what, what? What's legal, though? I mean, if I a, mean, a revolution, a, re- a successful revolution resets the legal counter. I mean, okay, that's but, the, always the question but of any... Sure, but short of, short of, short of what uh, my friend Sharon Engel called Second Amendment remedies, uh, <laughs> we, have the, the, we have the collective power to vote for things, right? To elect different people, oh. to put forth referenda, to put forth constitutional amendments, to rise up collectively and yes. you know change the rules but of, we can't the change the regime we're still all those things you just mentioned are operating within the confines of a particular regime i.e the Amer- the american republic as we know it i mean no one's but we could change it if we wanted to but what i'm saying is it serves people well enough the state really draws its legitimacy not from any institutional arrangement but from people's sense that it serves them people's sense that the government you know makes their lives possible. And complacency and a certain kind of inertia, right? I mean, again, as we we're saying- But you only get complacency and inertia if everything's okay. Well, People also- People aren't complacent and inert if, if, if like, shit's real bad. <laughs> for them, for them, but they will, you know, stand aside while, while a genocide happens on their watch. Again, well, well proven uh, fact the- of, of human, of human nature. So I just throw that out there on the, on the, in the case for, for no, human guys, shittiness. There is a certain degree of privilege in this conversation in the sense that- Call us out. No, no, no. I just mean like <laughs> as Americans, no matter how bad we think our country is, the very fact that we can have conversations exactly. like this suggests a certain like luxury. Exactly. Like we luxury have it good. pretty good. Yeah. And that's why like most people, they talk shit about their government and they say that they don't believe in like- Nobody's moving to Sudan. Yeah, no, yeah. And also, um, like all the people who talk about like the big lie, stop the steal. Oh, um, the election was stolen from Donald Trump. You know, if they really thought that the election was stolen from Donald Trump, it would mean the end of American democracy as we know it. If they really believed in the end of democracy as we know it, presumably they might go to the U.S. Capitol and try to murder some people. Right, but that's only that was like a thousand people. But like, if if seventy four million Trump supporters really believe that, or fifty million, whatever it might be, we would see mass protests. I mean, this is a little bit of a different. No, point. but it's but aggressive. you know, to the point to the point of the 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 Capitol thing. I mean, that was to me was a a, a massive strike against legitimacy. And again, I. You know, I've said it a few times here. Shadi gets gets the hives when I say this, but I mean, I was, I was, I really was outraged. I remember I was watching it uh, live. Basically, I was in Croatia with my with my folks, uh, sort of watching it disbelief. And and honestly, I I I I was sort of with Tom Cotton when he was saying, "Where are the troops?" putting this down. I would, you know, I mean, I was so outraged basically on the sense of, of the kind of violation of a certain kind of order, you know, and I mean, this gets the whole, you know, like slew of things about the kind of, uh, you know, what is the, the right of protest? What's the limit of that? And, you know, where does it go? Where does it break? I, I, but the, the bigger picture after you get out of the emotional moment that I thought that was just 
absolutely uh, appalling is in fact that there is a kind of, I think, um, and you're right, we, it, we are a state, it's born in violence and it's, it's been a violent history. America's always been, had like a, a violent politics to it. So we shouldn't downplay that and we shouldn't have blinders, again, sort of these historical blinders that you were alluding to earlier that, you know, somehow it was better and, you know, things are getting worse. But it is literally true that it was the first time in American history that we did not have a peaceful transfer of power. Yeah. And I, right. and I, and I found that alarming as well. And I don't want to seem like blase about any of that. And I do think that it's, that, that particularly the erosion of confidence in elections on both sides. Legitimacy again. Um, is, An institution, Is a blow to legitimacy, is a blow to democracy, and is something we should be worried about. Yeah. yeah. So I just want to say, um, I love this back and forth. And this is something that I treasure every time we have a guest when we get to this point where the guest is pushing back on Demir and challenging him. <laughs> so I really appreciate that, Molly. So thank you for doing that and ending on a very strong note. Um, a happy and, note. Yeah. Yes. And <laughs> Actually, agreement. Unless you have like a final profound comment to share with us. We're just happy that you could join us on this very busy week. There's a lot going on, obviously. And now I feel like I have a much better sense of where things are going, I think. Yeah, I do. I think I do. <laughs> so thank you for that. Molly. My aim is only to confuse and perplex. So Excellent. That's Sounds what like reporters do. Achieved that. Yeah. <laughs> great. Thanks for joining us. This is great. Thanks so much for having me. This is super fun. Mm -hmm.